The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, a former Sunday Express editor bids for the Sunday people. Will they really rebrand it, the news of the people? Plus, we cast our eye over ITV's prospects for 2013. And we find out why a Daily Mail lawyer could have the answer to the future of press regulation. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'm joined by Dan Saber, The Guardian's Head of Media and Tech, and Matthew Horsman, Director of Media Consultancy, Mediateek. Welcome both. First up this week, the Sunday People. Former Sunday Express editor Sue Douglas is heading a consortium to take a majority stake in the Trinity Mirror-owned paper. Douglas is part of an unlikely-looking triumvirate that also includes ex-ITV executive Rupert Howell and Brian Kennedy, who you may not know is the millionaire owner of the Sale Sharks Rugby Club. The group would become majority owners of the paper, if it all goes ahead, of course, which they may then rebrand the News of the People. Dan, this proposed title gives a clue as to what this is all about. It's the perceived gap in the market left by the closure of the news of the world. Yeah, well, <laughs> clearly some believers in newspapers out there. I mean, Sue Douglas and team seem to think that uh, there are an awful lot of news of the world readers. I think 1.3 million sort of uh, lapsed Sunday newspaper buyers. I suspect there are people who are probably buying the Sunday Times and wanted a bit of what they thought was sort of, you know, fun and entertainment on the side until it suddenly became not so fashionable. But anyway, uh, they think there's all these folks out there and there's sort of they want to get hold of the Sunday people with this concoct this curious hybrid name and buy some fonts and make it look like the news of the world. I'm not sure Rupert Murdoch would rest easy, and I'm not sure it's that compelling an idea. But, you know, there are a group of people who want to put money into a newspaper, and I, I think you can see why Trinity Mirror might be willing to let them, let them have 51% and give it a try. I should also say we're joined for this part of the show by Roy Greenslade uh, on location. Roy, what did you make of all this? Uh, well, no one wants to stamp on a fresh initiative, especially at this time, and the idea that people still have faith in newsprint and in popular newsprint and in Sunday tabloid newsprint is fairly amazing. But, you know, to be absolutely honest, I just don't think there's an audience for it. A lot of people will have transferred their affections from the news of the world to the sun on Sunday. I doubt they're going to change. But the whole market, the red-top Sunday market, has been going down at a more dramatic rate even than the market for daily newspapers, down, I think, 31 32% over just five years. And I just don't think there's a fresh audience for an old idea. That's the problem. I mean, um, the News of the World agenda, we're way beyond that now. The truth is that the News of the World really sold on sex. And the idea that you can have lots of kiss and tell and lots of sex in this post-Leveson period, but most importantly, a period in which is influenced now by the incursion of the Privacy Act being used by judges and so on, I just don't think they can make it work. Um, Matthew, Roy there painted a pretty bleak picture of the, of the Sunday tabloid market. Uh, and this deal has been talked up as uh, possibly worth up to about £10 million. Do, do, do you see it as, as money well spent? Do you see value in this title? Well, I agree with Roy that it's interesting to see people putting their hands in their pockets for uh, the dead trees business. Um, so it's encouraging perhaps for those of us who still read the newspapers. Um, I, I think it's probably pretty indicative of the thinking at Trinity Mirror to a degree as well. They have already shown themselves to be willing to think about partnerships and different ways of being exposed to newspapers without necessarily taking on the full risk. So they put some money into the Local World Initiative of David Montgomery. The, the new leadership there is trying new things to sort of work their way through what is a pretty challenged industry generally. So I don't think I, I'm a bit with Roy and perhaps with Dan. Let's not you know, be too negative about the idea that fresh money is coming in. 
hand on heart, but I put my money into a, a startup Sunday newspaper, even with sort of riding on the brand of uh, News of the World No. Dan, Sue Douglas, former Sunday Express editor. It's, it's, well, tell us a bit about her. And also, it's, it's not the first time she's tried to get into the Sunday newspaper market. There was interest uh, before in, in other titles. Well, she's been floating around for some while. She seems to think uh, and seems to be able to get, got, has got this sort of big chunk of, chunk of money together. She seems to think there's absolutely this gap in the market left by the news of the world. There's been hovering around. There's been some dis- half-baked discussions with Richard Desmond about taking control of the Daily Star Sunday, even, I think, an approach, curiously, to the Lebedevs about the Independent on Sunday, not obviously Red Top, but but the proposition is, or the belief is, that you know they could run a Sunday newspaper with more vigour than some of the established players. All, all they want to do, by the way, is buy the sort of the masthead and the journalists. They want to leave the print contracts and all that with the all those other sort of you know legacy costs, if you like, the HR and the admin with the big companies. So that maybe reduces their risk a bit. But I'm not sure there's a brilliant idea out there that will sort of suddenly revive Sunday newspapers or, or, or the proposition. And I think Sue herself, although she's got good editorial experience behind her, is not uh, is not planning on being the editor herself, although that raises all sorts of questions, not least for James Scott, the incumbent over the people, who's only been relatively recently appointed and presumably thought he had a job to do. Yeah, Roy, Dan there mentions the editor of The People, and it's, news of this is pretty tough if you're a, if you're a staff on the paper, and it's, been, it's felt like it's been the sort of unloved title in the Trinity Mirror stable for some time now, and the, the latest ABCs is fewer than 500,000 a week it sells now. Do you see a, well, do you see a future for it if, if this doesn't go ahead, for instance, in the long term? Uh, no, I mean, I think it, it was gradually drifting towards death. Um, this may may just give it a bit of life, or it may indeed just hasten the death. You can't really tell, but... The truth is that the people has been unloved uh, ever since the Mirror bought it back in the 60s. Uh, it always felt like the cousin that wasn't wanted, and every editor going back into time would tell you roughly the same. It's that difficulty of being the third paper in a stable and not having a daily running with it, a standalone Sunday paper. Um, it's got a fantastic history, I ought to say. During its broadsheet days, it was a great investigative newspaper, it won awards. It actually led some of its investigations to 90 police officers uh, having to resign from the Metropolitan Force after they found that they were uh, involved in corrupt practices. Uh, it exposed it was the first to expose great football bribes. Major investigations were carried out uh, by a famous man of the time called Duncan Edwards, called the greatest reporter of his era in the 50s. But all this is in the past. It's present has been rather lamentable. Now, I have to say, I've worked with uh, Sue Douglas. She's a nice person. She's got great networking talents, and I feel she's probably put those to good use in order to talk these people into putting money behind it. And she's got plenty of editorial now. She once worked on the news of the world, actually, only for a relatively short time. She did brilliantly on the mail on Sunday. There are divisions about how well she did on the Sunday Times that I worked alongside and thought she did pretty well. But... I still feel she's really been out of the game too long to really have a definite idea about a formula that will work in 2013 at a time when, let's face it, print is going out of fashion. And Matthew, just finally, Simon Fox hasn't been in the job too long as, as Chief Exec of Trinity Mirror. You touched on the, some of his strategy earlier on. How, 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 do you see, how do you think he's fared so far? Pretty early days to say. I, I wonder if he looks back and wishes he had taken the RTV job, which uh, might have been a better place to be if you wanted to be rewarded with share, uh, shares in uh, in a company that's done well, because certainly Trinity Mirror is not a place where 
you could expect much appreciation in the share price. Jury's still out. I think he's, an a- from all uh, accounts, uh, you know, an able chief executive, and uh, I think uh, he'll be he'll be uh, judged by the next few months. Okay, Matthew, thanks, and uh, Roy Greenstone, thanks, thanks to you too. Thank you. Well, Matthew mentioned ITV there, so it seems a perfect opportunity to move on to Britain's biggest commercial broadcaster. Well, is it? Is it still bigger than Sky? Well, biggest no, uh, commercial channel, at least. Yeah. Let's leave it at that. Um, by the way, did anyone see Splash? Yes, yes, I love Splash. Matthew's shaking I his thought, head. But, I saw uh, about five minutes of it. <laughs> <laughs> that was probably enough. I saw it my son. He's 11. We watched it from beginning to end and didn't fast forward past too many of the ads. So I, I was on a slight time delay. I thought Splash was great fun, actually. I, I don't know how they keep the format going into, into into future weeks, but it was the first thing that it felt like. It was something that was different in prime time. The first time I'd seen something innovative in since forever. And it was, you know, and Vernon Kay could have, you know, not worn his preposterous shorts perhaps. And Gabby Logan looked a bit odd with her hair tied back, looked very aquiline. But all in all, it was good, solid entertainment, good, solid family fun. Well, the good news for Splash fans is that we'll be talking about uh, that with Vicky Frost uh, later in the show. So, uh, uh, Matthew will be staying tuned. Um, but uh, we spent so much of the last few months talking about the BBC, we thought it was time we turned our attention elsewhere. Plus, the broadcaster has been given glowing reports by analysts, uh, one of whom made it their top media pick of 2013. Its share price at the time of recording was £1.9p, up from around 70p six months ago. Uh, Matthew, there's, a, there's an advertising dispute related to this, which we'll come on to in a minute, if that's OK. But would you make ITV your media pick of the year? Listen, I think it's, in, it's absolutely indicative of the fact that there's real life in the old beast yet. Terrestrial TV is in good shape in most Western economies. People watch a lot of free-to-air television. These broadcasters are very powerful. They still are the only place in these different countries where you can get multi-millions tuning in. And advertisers have tended to be prepared to pay a premium, even if those multi-millions are fewer than they used to be, say, 10 years ago. So I think, uh, you know, whether or not ITV itself is going to be the best performer across the media, uh, there's certainly a case to be said that broadcast uh, stocks will do well. We've got possibly the shoots of a proper recovery, triple dip notwithstanding, but we've got a a better environment. The stock market certainly is is suggesting it will be better. Uh, I think advertising will continue to do okay for television. Uh, you know, we spoke about newspapers. If you think back over the last 10 years, uh, newspapers have lost something like 30% of their revenues across subscription and advertising. And advertising has been completely wiped out pretty much um, as, a, as a major force. And a lot of that money has gone straight into online and digital. TV pretty much held up. Dan, ITV Chief Executive Adam Crozier appears to have succeeded where his predecessor Michael Grade failed, was he? Uh, is it down to him, or has he been lucky where Gray was unlucky? Do you think? I, I think Bonaparte would have definitely found a job for him. He, you know, Adam Crowes is emphatically a lucky general where his predecessors weren't. Uh, you know, the attention, you know, the attention has been elsewhere. Uh, the Leveson Inquiry has got nothing to do with television, but it's concentrated the fire of a lot of, you know, me- media journalists and correspondents. When they've not been focused on that, they've been focused on the BBC and its, uh, uh, its Jimmy Savile travails and, and, and the poor performance of George Entwistle. And no one has been thinking or talking or writing about ITV for a long time now. And that is just a, a great place, if you like, for ITV to be because it allows them to get on with the job of trying to sort of rebuild things quietly, you know, do so with confidence. When ITV is in the news, it's in the news for bad reasons because 
because they can't find a success. You know, they couldn't find a chairman to replace Michael Grade. It was sort of that process is a complete shambles until Archie Norman came on. Rewind to the further back, you know, when Charles Allen was going, who was the dominant figure for a period. Then the, the play again, the, the place was so weak that along came NTL as it was with this opportunistic bid. And then it took James Murdoch actually to rescue them. And funny enough, that's the other thing that sort of propped up ITV quietly in these years, which is that the still substantial Sky Stake, not as big as it was, but whatever is, 7.5%, just to sort of take it away, that bid speculation which floated around most of the first half of the decade, and has at least given the company some kind of stability to try and develop a decent schedule. Peter Finch has been there a long time. Okay, ITV One looks a bit like BBC One Light, but at least we're not coming up with celebrity shark bait anymore. Uh, you know, at least there's some stability there in the organisation, which, you know, for 15 years before that, ITV was fighting each other because it was Carlton versus Granada versus United versus what have you. This is all sort of ancient history in a way, but it created, ultimately meant there was a poor product because people were so busy fighting themselves rather than making great TV. So, yeah, it's, it's an interesting moment. I don't think Crows has done anything brilliant, but these are definitely happier times. I think it's absolutely right that, that Crozier is a lucky general. Let's keep in mind, too, that that team of Archie Norman and, and Adam Crozier are absolutely fixated on the city. They're absolutely looking at quarterly performance and half-yearly performance, and they're delivering on the promises they gave the city. What this proves about these these terrestrial TV stocks and, and companies, indeed, is that they are incredibly cash-generative. If things are going reasonably well and advertising is being spent and uh, network TV continues to derive much more than its, as it were, fair share on just viewing alone, in other words, they outperform against uh, a declining viewing share over the years, uh, this drops to the bottom line so very quickly. So you end up in a situation where you could have been heavily indebted only a few years ago, and that debt is being absolutely paid down. There even is talk in some of these analyst reports you're talking, that, that you've referred to, John, there's talk of returning cash to shareholders. I mean, this is an amazing turnaround over the last three to five years. So I think that that is all very positive noise for Crozier, for his relationship with the city. He hasn't really transformed ITV in the way that he set out to do. And in fact, really, there's, it's like that moment um, uh, that inevitably happens at ITV where someone gets up and says, what I need to do is to reconfigure the company so that it doesn't get most of its money from one single business in one single country. That is to say, TV advertising. And, and they say, we're going to transform the company and within a few years, we're going to be a different kind of animal. But in fact, here we are with traditional net advertising revenue, so-called NAR, is still 68% of ITV's revenues. Uh, and actually, that's not a bad place to be if those revenues are being generated. But he hasn't transformed the company. It isn't a completely new beast. It hasn't gone into pay TV. It isn't tapping different revenue streams. It's got very little in the way of vi- video on demand. It's actually quite a small part of their business. So he's, in a sense, gotten away with not transforming ITV and still delivering on pretty much the cash, the uh, earnings uh, projections, etc. I think the only honourable thing ITV could do, because you summarised it well there, which is, Matthew, you know, the ITV problem is everyone talks about wanting to transform it. When you look at all the options, none of them are particularly achievable. I mean, what are you going to do? Create a, you know, they tried with ITV Play to sort of create a kind of phone-in business and then very, you know, rapidly abused the consumer, frankly, and that collapsed quite quickly. And there's, there aren't any obvious big transformative ideas, except, save I think, for one, which is they could make a bigger bet on production and they could perhaps, now that they're in a sort of financially robust position, they could bid for, you know, one of the production businesses that's still around or 
or, or, or invest more deeply. And I think it'd be interesting to see if they do finally succumb to the temptation of that, because I think that's the only strategic move they can honestly make, because the others won't work. I, I think that's right. The production side is where a lot of the uh, the target for diversification is. But at the same time, I think they've shown themselves not to want to do these big transformative deals. They looked at and passed on all three media when that was available for sale recently. Uh, they aren't really, I don't think, going to go put a lot, you know, hundreds of millions into the production sector. They'll do small strategic acquisitions like they've recently done in the U.S. They'll buy bits and pieces here in the U.K. And just keep in mind that roughly over the last five, six years, uh, they've made around 500, 600 million of production revenues, half of which they pay them to themselves because it's just the, the, you know, funding the schedule, as it were. So external revenues from production, which are now in the high 300 million, almost 400 million, but they've been 300 million for several years. It's not as if this has been a radical change. Uh, I don't listen to Splash or I only saw a few minutes of it. The fact is millions of people do, and that's what makes their money. And just finally, Dan talked about takeover speculation that uh, that dogged it in years gone by. What, what chance that sort of reigniting later this year, Matthew? I, I very much doubt that we're going to see huge interest in uh, a takeover in the UK. I think there was a chance possibly that, that Sky's attempt to, to buy a, a significant amount of ITV that was pushed back by the regulators. I, I think that was probably the only corporate activity we were likely to see around this stock. People talk about the big American studios and, and networks coming in and buying into the UK. They won't do it. They don't like the UK. They don't understand public service broadcasting. They don't like the BBC. They know that Sky is a very big platform gatekeeper in relation to pay TV. So they're much more likely to be looking at their own markets than to come over here to the UK. There'll be players in pay TV. They all are, all those American uh, uh, networks and studios. But they're not going to buy ITV. Matthew, thanks for the moment. Coming up, we talk Channel 4, the future of press regulation, and we pay tribute to Alistair Milne. This week on The Guardian Audio Edition, David Cameron's threat to block EU reforms branded economic insanity, some surprising facts about hedgehogs, and in our audiobook review, we look at feminist audiobooks by Jermaine Greer and Natasha Walter. To subscribe for free to The Guardian Audio Edition, go to audible.co.uk slash guardian or find us on SoundCloud and iTunes. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture. So I mentioned earlier, uh, rather obliquely, uh, an advertising dispute related to the uh, optimistic forecast for ITV. And Matthew, this involves uh, Channel 4 and Sir Martin Sorrell's Group M, which is the media buying arm of WPP. Uh, Tell us all about it uh, in layman's terms, if you might. Well, there's been a dispute going on for some weeks, and unusually this has been played out in the newspapers, not least in the pages of The Guardian, uh, that there's been a big dispute between Group M, which is responsible for a big chunk, in fact, about a third of expenditure on TV advertising in the UK on behalf of advertisers. So Group M is the buying hub for all this airtime. And they do big deals with ITV, with Sky, with Channel 4 and 5. And they've been holding off doing a deal with Channel 4, uh, and Channel 4 had not been willing to do a deal on the basis that Group M was prepared to trade uh, for weeks and weeks and weeks. So it was a very high-stakes, really Mexican standoff, which uh, only got resolved, well, really, this week, uh, when the two sides had agreed. And the big disagreement was that Group M was looking for cheaper airtime on Channel 4, 
um, using as the excuse, if you will, of that, that Channel 4 has suffered in the, in the viewing and ratings uh, game, and that certainly since the loss of Big Brother some while ago, Channel 4 has not been firing on all cylinders, and therefore, why should Group M pay up for uh, access to Channel 4's impacts? Channel 4, meanwhile, thought it would be commercial suicide to allow Group M to dictate such a, a, an aggressive uh, lower price, because you know, this time it's Group M, next time it's Aegis and one of the other buyers. This would be a, a really slippery slope for Channel 4 if it sort of gave up with this big buyer, uh, really the biggest buyer, single buyer of airtime sales. Uh, if they gave up there, they would risk doing so elsewhere in other parts of the forest. They held their ground and the deal's been done. I think partly focused Group M's uh, willingness to finally deal on a level acceptable to Channel 4, I think, was informed by a couple of things. One, their own advertisers were saying, hang on now, you're saying we're not going to be on Channel 4? What, like all year not going to be on Channel 4? So there was definitely pressure coming from the advertisers behind Group M. But also, as, as you'll see from the, the weekly and consolidated results, Channel 4 had a good December and is having a very good start to the year in January, better than ITV, better than Sky, better than Channel 5. So clearly that was part of the, the argument that Channel 4 was making in, most, in the most recent days of negotiation, and I, tip, I think it tipped the balance. So, Dan, it sounds like Sorrell's WPB sort of blinked first and disaster averted for Channel 4. Well, in a way, yes, but I don't think Channel 4 should be too pleased. And I think, you know, following on from our conversation about ITV, I think, uh, you know, Channel 4's post-Big Brother, I think, has really sort of struggled to redefine itself over the past two or three years. And I think, again, when was ITV in the most trouble in sort of, in, in recent memory, it was in the middle, it was in the middle part of last decade where, you know, Channel 4 was riding high, Kevin Ligo was, uh, you know, Kevin Ligo sort of director of television over there, Big Brother, Celebrity Big Brother, but a whole range of shows where sort of at that point the broadcaster, like could do no wrong, was really beginning to compete head-to-head with ITV actually and was almost becoming a sort of, you know, thinking about becoming a sort of second, you know, an alternative mainstream commercial network. You know, that's now changed, you know, the, the Channel 4 has sort of been been re-emphasizing public service or perhaps if you're being unkind it hasn't been able to find or those sort of those hits uh million dollar trot notwithstanding and and and, and so you really got you know a weakish channel four i think now uh, uh, homeland certainly helped recently and i think there are have been sort of some signs of a you know some signs of a turnaround but all in all there just aren't enough of those sort of standout shows that everyone's talking about. You know, the Channel 4 doesn't get enough of those, you know, shows about north of sort of 2 million or so in ratings terms. So, you know, it's just, it's slightly struggling. And I think, you know, my sense is overall that, you know, advertisers are still willing to put their money and their faith in ITV as the number one brand. But I think it's the number two brand that's just, you know, you know they're not so sure about. And I think if you're going to, you're going to look and say, am I spending a bit less money on television this year? Then, you know, the place you're not going to take it away from is the number one and the place you might take it away from is the guys further down. I think it's generally the case that ITV gets its deals done first because you can't afford not to be there for, with the mass market um, deliverer of impacts across all adults, all individuals. So I think that's absolutely right. I think there's, though, a kind of cycle to these standoffs. It's not the first time we've seen buyers and sellers at an impasse. And I think often the, the buyers will pick and choose. I mean, not, not too long ago, a couple of years ago, Aegis was off Channel 5 for a long period, months of time, where Aegis, one of the big buyers, was not using Channel 5. So it was Channel 4's turn, if you will, a little bit as well. And Group M, 30 plus percent of, of uh, TV advertising in the UK, you know, had the ability to, you know, to, to, to try and drive quite a hard bargain. And I agree that Channel 4 has to deliver. This is clearly, it's, it's, 
been problematic since the loss of Big Brother. It seems to still be finding its way in terms of what replaces that overall across the whole of the schedule. And I agree, too, that a good December in the first eight days of January does not a recovery, a revival make. But clearly, Channel 4 is still the most effective and efficient deliverer of 16 to 34 demographics in the UK. And they will continue to be attractive to advertisers as a result of that. If they continue to not be able to deliver uh, recovery in terms of viewing and, 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 the, and the kinds of audiences they can aggregate on the Channel 4 schedule, there will be problems going forward, there's no doubt. But we're not in that situation now. And worth mentioning perhaps at this point, Dan, we had the, uh, the overall uh, audience shares came in for 2012. Um, BBC One was up, as you'd expect, on the back of the Olympics and the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. But also, some people might be surprised that Channel 5 inched up. Well, I think it's a reminder that uh, uh, Richard Desmond's never going to win any points for artistic impression. Uh, but if you've got Big Brother and Celebrity, Big Brother and Big Brother and Celebrity, Big Brother in your schedule all year, and you could argue Big Brother's, you know, the audience may be lower than it was on Channel 4, but it's more, it's happier on Channel 5. It can just be a little bit more... I don't know, tabloid TV, I think, and C4 has had to come up with some spurious justification as to why it was on air. So I think, you know, the Desmond model can work. It can be at relatively low cost. And if it does, that is, you know, that is, again, a problem when Channel 4 sort of overall audience shares is, is, is somewhat softer. So, yeah, we shouldn't, you know, we, we certainly shouldn't, you know, write off the competition. And, 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 you know, it makes for a rather, you know, interesting market ecology, I think. Okay, well, that's enough TV for now. It's time to talk Leveson and the newspaper industry's efforts to inch towards a new system of press regulation. Cabinet Office Minister Oliver Letwin proposed a royal charter plan, but now the industry has proposed an alternative involving, Dan, a charitable trust. Oh, this is the modern Schleswig-Holstein question, John. I, I, I sort of, I, I, I feel sorry for anyone who has an interest because it, <laughs> it's become so contorted and so complicated that everyone's position is about 180 degrees from where it started and nobody knows how they got here. So in essence, and, you know, what David Cameron said when he got up in Parliament on receiving the Leveson report, said, there shall be no bill. And where we are now is that Oliver Letwin, a couple of days ago, has got a five-page bill, which is somewhat different from David Cameron's position, I'm sure you'll agree. And we got there because well, I mean, this is almost extraordinary, which is that, that instead of having a, a bill in order to mark the homework, because what, what Lewisham wanted to do was say, look, you've got to have public confidence in a revamped PCC, so we need a new a body to oversee that. Great, who's going to guard the guardians? Leveson said there'll be a bill. Cameron said there wouldn't. Letwin said there'll be a royal charter, but then everyone was worried because a royal charter can be muddled around with by ministers because it's sort of what's Queen in Council. Well, what's the Queen? It's actually the government of the day that can decide and call the shots. So Letwin says, OK, well, we'll make sure that doesn't happen. And then they proposed all sorts of mechanisms, uh, which, and the last of which was, well, we'll have a little bill, a bill to propose that ministers can't mess with the royal charter because we're having a royal charter to not have a bill. Oh, it's too confusing. Uh, but the point is, we've come, you know, a full 180 degrees. I think there's some better vernacular to describe that, but we're, we're, we're on air here. And unsurprisingly, the press doesn't like it. And why doesn't it like it? Because the moment you put a bill into the Commons or the Lords at that point, uh, you know, any angry backbench MP could put in amendments and suddenly the whole game could change. And for some people, uh, that is just, that is too dangerous a scenario to contemplate. So in all this sort of, Soup. I think we've got the sort of Oliver Letman's clever clogs plan is gradually falling to pieces. And somebody has come up with an alternative idea. I think actually it's a lawyer over at the Daily Mail, but um, doesn't make it a bad idea, which is that why don't we have a charitable trust? Just a body, you know, a corporate body. It's constructed independent of, of government, of parliament, 
it's got a it's got a purpose regulated loosely by the charities commission it will have on it a group of people who will mark the work of the PCC and say whether it's Leveson compliant or not and hopefully ensure public confidence. And this, if it's adopted, seems like a much simpler solution. But and no Oliver legislation Letwin required, there. yeah? No legislation required. But is Oliver Letwin there? Who knows? Who indeed cares, one could argue, and yet this industry needs to come up with a working model for reform. We cannot, you know, post phone hacking, post all things happen. You know, something's got to be done. Government's got to play its part, but it's proving frightfully difficult to get agreement. Matthew, a bit late to ask you what you, what you made of the Leveson report, but what have you made of sort of the, the, the toing and froing since uh, between government and editors, editors and in between editors? I think at the end of the day, the, the most extraordinary thing looking at all of this is how little the press has done to make it possible to avoid the idea of having some kind of legislation or statutory underpinning. It just seems extraordinary to me that whatever you want to call it, the arrogance or the or the, uh, the misplaced uh, views that they may t- take on the industry and what they've been guilty of doing as a, an aggregate industry, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling that they haven't moved into a little bit of a vacuum where they might have had some control over where this goes, short of a statutory underpinning, uh, if you will, a, a, a judge for the judges. And I think that one of the things that, that the press is thinking, or the, the editors and the publishers are thinking, is if they wait long enough, it all goes away and that the pressures that we had before Christmas and, and post the Levinson report coming out will somehow go away. But the fact remains, that I think Dan's right, something has to happen, and the idea of it being done from inside seems to be not happening at the speed that it is required. So I suspect even Cameron will lose patience. And finally this week, some sad news, which was the death of the former Director General of the BBC, Alistair Milne. Dan? Well... I mean, people talk about... It's a commonplace to talk about the BBC having its worst crisis since either the Second World War. I think John Simpson made such a grandiose claim only uh, only recently when talking about Jimmy Savile. But I think when you look at the the turbulent period of uh, Alastair Milne's direct generalship in the, in the 1980s, he was on, on, in charge between 82 and 87 and forced out, you, you realise that everything else sort of, you know, pales into insignificance, even I think, even I think arguably Hutton, because this is a period of sustained conflict. This is a period when the, the Thatcher government was in sustained conflict with the BBC uh, over a number of issues, a Real Lives documentary interview with Martin McGuinness that Leon Britton didn't want aired, he was the Home Secretary, the Zircon spy satellite row, which saw a raid on the BBC, the coverage of the, K-80's coverage of the Libya bombing, which saw Norman Tebbit, party chairman, again criticised the BBC incredible period of hostility and ultimately you know, uh, Thatcher sort of packed the board of governors brought in Duke Hussey and then they kicked and, and, and they kicked Milne out um, and I think you know, in a way it's remarkable the BBC survived actually and remained the broadcaster of scale and scope and wasn't privatised or whatever at that point which frank, quite frankly could well have happened these are the 1980s after all it was tough for the BBC given the amount of polarisation in the 1980s, polarisation of issues, but but a really difficult director generalship and a reminder, I think, of how much things have changed and how and the BBC's ability ultimately to weather uh, uh, political pressure. This week sees the start of the Media Guardian 25, our survey of Britain's 25 most important media companies. We'll cover television and newspapers, magazines and music, and the best of digital media. We'll be starting on Monday with an analysis of ITV. How well is it doing against the other major media players? Find out this Monday in The Guardian.
Well, it's time now to find out what's hot or not, or should I say wet or dry, uh, if you prefer, on the small screen with The Guardian's TV and radio editor, Vicky Frost. Vicky, hello. Hello, hello. Wet or dry, of course, because it's all about ITV1 Splash this it week. It is, it yeah. is, which we talked about a bit last week, how bonkers it sounded. And in fact, yes, it is that bonkers in reality. Quite a jolly thing, I think. I know that's not a particularly fashionable view, although it is with the millions of people who watched it. About but, six million odd. Yeah, I know, pretty good. Um, and they stayed watching. Well, they stayed watching because, I mean, it is astonishing, actually. Given the amount of action you're actually watching, which is, I mean, must amount to about two minutes because you're only watching sort of five dives, basically. Uh, They do manage to spin it out for a very, very long time. It's better watched on catch-up, I think. I managed to fast-forward through lots of bits of (laughs) Vernon Kay going on while wearing shorts. Like Um, so much of ITV1. Of of course not, I'm a big viewer. I know, terrible. Uh, But it did have its moments, you know, Helen Lederer being completely mad, basically. Omar Jalili doing this amazing, amazing sort of dive. Uh, I can quite see it being a perfectly good sort of Saturday, early, early evening Saturday night uh, telly, actually. Well, that's probably enough splash uh, this week. We'll find out uh, on Monday when the overnights come in if, if, if next week's audience uh, takes a dive or sinks without trace or does a perfect six, uh, ten. Anyway, that's enough. Uh, <laughs> don't know how they judge diving, but uh, you can tell I didn't watch it. Uh, but Vicky, what else this week? So, so at the other end of the spectrum, really, from Splash, uh, the return of Borgen, uh, the Danish political drama, to BBC Four on Saturday night, which started a bit slowly, actually. I am a big fan of the um, drama with its uh, goings-on within Danish Parliament. It's basically, I mean, it is basically about Danish coalition politics, uh, led by, which sounds very dull, but See, led now you by... watch Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> That's my programme. <laughs> uh, led by the amazing sort of Birgitta Nyborg, who is uh, played by Sidsi Babette Knudsen, I think I'm saying that right, probably not. She's fantastic, and I thought the first episode actually wasn't fantastic. It was a bit slow to get going, but it seemed to sort of pick up uh, by the end of the second episode, and this week's episodes are very good, actually, three and four. So word has it, Matthew, you haven't seen any of these Scandinavian dramas, so you shouldn't be allowed in the Guardian building, frankly. I know, I, I realise that every time I read the pages of the Guardian, that's all anyone seems to be watching. I must get on to it. You've got to learn Matthew a box set, Vicky. Yeah. yeah. B- the BBC4 has really sort of, you know, kind of paved the way for these and has really, it's done very well out of them. And actually, but uh, it isn't, BBC4 is not only Scandinavian drama, although it may sometimes seem a bit like that. Uh, this week they had Spies of Warsaw, which was an adaptation of the Alan First novel, uh, starring David Tennant. Very classy thing. It kind of was quite split opinion, I think. It went out on Wednesday night without a great deal of fanfare. Uh, it's a two-parter, concludes next week. I think very much worth catching up with and watching the second part of. But then I am a fan of the Alan First books, and not everybody is. So I think the plotting's fine. I know other people thought it was less fine. I quite like the score, which is a bit jazzy, but not everybody else did. OK, and talking of drama, as you were, uh, there's a couple of... Uh, well, there's certainly one very exciting drama coming up on Channel 4 called Utopia, which looks just sci-fi enough for my liking. Yeah, it's kind of sci-fi. It's not actually that sci-fi at all, but it oh, is a very interesting it. thing. It <laughs> uh, starts on Tuesday, Utopia, written by Dennis Kel- Kelly of Pulling... Uh, and also Spooks fame. and uh, Definitely inter- gone off it. <laughs> <laughs> pulling. Pulling's the best wow, thing ever. Spooks. Um, but it's, See but, BBC program. That's fine. <laughs> With violence. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you finished your grumble about a, about a show that's been off air for a bit. Um, so Pulling and Spooks. And, and actually the show does kind of... You can see both of those things in uh, Utopia. In a good way, I should say. And it's about uh, a comic book... 
that has perhaps uh, more power than just an ordinary uh, comic book. I'm trying desperately not to give any spoilers away. I don't want to really say anything about more it. More power than an ordinary <laughs> comic book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm struggling to imagine. <laughs> I know it's hard. It does more than just sit in the newsagent and gather <laughs> dust. Um, <laughs> yeah, I thought comic books were spineless. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I don't, but I really don't want to give spoilers because what's interesting about this is it really doesn't. It's really quite different from a lot of other stuff on telly. It is doing something quite new. Anyway, it's definitely watch, worth a watch. There is a torture scene in it that is quite full on, and I had to do a bit of going oh uh, but I was watching it on my own which made that better rather than those people staring at me as I did that but I am slightly squeamish so maybe other people find it less sort of full on one for zero dark 30 fans there yeah and it's <laughs> a film reference yeah oh, time for one more show I think <laughs> and but the reason but the thing with uh, that's interesting actually about channel four is they have been making this uh push into drama they've had some new stuff and actually they've got two good things this week so they have utopia but they also have uh my big fat teenage diary uh which starts on e4 uh this week and is a comedy drama I guess and is really, really good, I think. Uh, kind of, it's being billed sort of as Adrian Mole for the new generation. It's set in the 90s, so if you're in your 30s, basically you'll just love it because it's just full of, like, oh. basically you being a teenager, pretty much. Uh, I, yeah, I, I sort of quite liked it for that reason. I'm too and, old. <laughs> I think you'll still sort of go, oh, I had that Stone Roses T-shirt sort of thing, you know. No, and, Genesis. <laughs> Oh, I forgot about your weird musical <laughs> taste. And um, it's it really worth watching. And um, the person in the lead role, uh, who I've not seen on television before, is fantastic. And the script's great. And it's a really charming thing. And it sort of manages to move you and to make you laugh. So both of those worth catching. Uh, that's on Monday night and Utopia on Tuesday night. Well, thank you very much. There's time now just for our Media Monkey quiz, which I know I can say you are both equally excited about with some confidence, <laughs> as in not at all. Right. So uh, question number one, uh, what are 13,000 TV viewers still doing in the digital age? Ah, watching black and white TV. Ah, one point to Matthew Orsman there. That's right. Yes. Um, question number. I don't think. Can you even get black and white TVs? You can. You have to pay a license for it. You do. £49.50. It is cheaper, and you can. At- it's a bit more tricky than regular uh, TV, but you can attach a set-top box. And uh, okay. tricky with HD though, or, or 3D. Although they are 3D TVs because they're not flat screens. Question number two: uh, Who is returning to the Archers, even though her character never left? Oh, Clary Grundy. I yep. do know this, although I don't know the name of the actor involved. I'm afraid, but no the points. person who is the person who's <laughs> playing Clary now is leaving, and she's being replaced by the person who used to play Clary. That's correct. Isn't Ding it? dong, Heather Bell. That's right, that's the actor's name. Yes, right. Complete the phrase uttered into the face of Piers Morgan this week. 1776 will commence again if you... It's about guns. It is about guns, yeah. If you don't leave the country. (laughs) (laughs) That's what everyone was thinking, yes. (laughs) Yeah, well, Vicky, yep, half a point. If you try to take our firearms... And that was Alex Jones' uh, memorable on-air tirade on uh, Morgan's CNN chat show. Not not Alex Jones of the one show, of course. (laughs) It was uh, Alex Jones who's a pro-gun fire... Programs chef in America, altogether not as uh, wholesome. Uh, what is former Five Live controller Adrian Van Claveran's new job tipped to be? He is overseeing the BBC's coverage of the 100th anniversary of the First World War. What? That's oh. such a weird job, isn't it? From one trench to another. Well, <laughs> it is timely at least. And finally, as revealed in the uh, DMGT, uh, could be one for you here, Matthew, as revealed in the uh, Daily Mail and General Trust's annual report today, I what don't is. I know why you think I haven't been reading those, John. <laughs> What is Paul Dacre's... Probably not. Hold on, no points for interrupting. In fact, minus points. What is Paul Dacre's pension pot worth? 
Millions. Take a guess. You're on the right track. Yes, multi-millions. Give me a figure. Ten. Ten million. Fourteen point eight million pounds. Okay. Do I get the half point for being closer than Vicky? Yeah, Yeah, I think I think Horsman takes that two two one, I think. Or there could be a Stuart and Quite. Oh, two all. Two all tells me producer Matt. That's where we like to be. That means there's a tiebreaker question, which is what should the tiebreaker question be? Uh, answers on the postcard. But that really is it. My thanks to Dan Saber, Matthew Horsman, Vicky Frost, and to Roy Greenslade. Do please talk about this week's show at our Facebook page or our blog, which you can find at mediaguardian.co.uk, or you can tweet me at johnplunkett149. Media Talk is produced by Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.